kneel before Zor. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film released in the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Watcher in the Woods, released October 9th, 1981. It was written by Brian Clemens, Harry Spaulding, Rosemary Ann Sison, Sison, I'm not sure. From a novel by Florence Engel Randall and uncredited work from Jerry Day, directed by John Hugh with uncredited work from Vincent McAvity, and released by Buena Vista Distribution. In 1976, Florence Engel Randall's novel, A Watcher in the Woods, was published. The story of the film sticks pretty closely to the book, but Disney did make a few completely irrelevant changes, like retitling the story The Watcher in the Woods and changing the central family's name from Carstairs to Curtis. I was unable to locate an audiobook copy in time to confirm which ending the book goes with compared to the film. Sorry, their last name was Carstairs? Carstairs, yeah. Okay. Not stair car. <laughs> Carstairs. Because you're going to get hop-ons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when he found the book, producer Tom Leach brought it to Disney head Ron Miller and pitched it as Disney's answer to The Exorcist, as if they were <laughs> looking what? for one. <laughs> was that... Said something they were in need we of. need an exorcist <laughs> every studio's doing an exorcist we need to do the exorcist for kids <laughs> a script was commissioned from brian clemens and later rewritten by rosemary ann sison 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 and then jerry day director john huff or hugh <laughs> <laughs> You're having a lot of today. <laughs> was attached on the strength of his turn directing The Legend of Hell House in 73. <laughs> Disney really needed the guy who did Hell House. Mm -hmm. He'd already done like Escape from and to Witch Mountain, but he, they needed the Hell House guy. Yeah. The adaptation was originally set as a TV movie, but the darker than usual story and the casting of Betty Davis in the role of Mrs. Aylwood led Disney executives to consider a theatrical run. The part of Jan was originally announced as having gone to Diane Lane, who later withdrew to appear in Touched by Love, which we covered last season. Coincidentally, though, both films are dedicated to Karens. Best Supporting Actress nominee Quinn Cumming from The Goodbye Girl was offered the role of the younger sister Ellie and turned it down. The film got an early limited release in the summer of 1980, or I guess late spring of 1980, with an original much darker ending. And right away, audiences were horrified that Disney would unleash something like this on their unsuspecting children. In total, it had grossed only $40,000 before it was quickly pulled from theaters and replaced with a rushed re-release of Mary Poppins. And The Watcher wouldn't see theaters again until nearly a year and a half later. So was that, so the original ending is what people didn't like? Correct. The original ending is what Richard sent you a YouTube link of. Right, right, right. Okay. And they literally pulled that after it made almost no money. It was a limited release. So $40,000 is also just a, basically a New York like a preview screen. A few theaters. And yeah. Like, okay. But it did poorly this. enough that they were like, never mind. And they had this Mary Poppins release planned, but they bumped it up a year to fill the space in all the theaters that were suddenly dumping water in the woods. Wow. 
The film's visual effects designer Harrison Ellenshaw has said that a writing team was assembled by Disney that went to work developing as many as 152 possible endings for the film before the one they settled on. The new ending was directed by Herbie Goes Bananas director Vincent McAveedy, who goes uncredited in the film because he didn't contribute enough footage to the final product. But 152 possible endings? Yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering what else they could have done. <laughs> it's just like totally out of left yeah, field. Yeah, like. I figure it's literally a list where it's like, it turns what out it's a ghost. What if they just open an ice cream out. shop and yeah. they're yeah. like, what? <laughs> what if this is the third Witch Mountain movie? Just oh. like all sorts of weird stuff. Yeah, yeah, okay. That actually could have made, <laughs> maybe made, made it better. better. <laughs> like you tie it into some franchise. Yeah. It's like the Cloverfield paradox. Yeah. This is right like, at the what? very end, Iron Man just crashes through the roof of the church. They also removed an opening scene where the demon-esque Watcher character vaporizes a young girl's doll in the woods before the opening titles even started. Because <laughs> they were like, let's ditch all of this character because it's terrifying. I, I really liked that character. I did too. I, I'm disappointed it didn't make it into the actual final film. The re-release eventually grossed a total of $5 million, but not enough to pay for itself. It was remade in 2017 as a Lifetime film, and we'll discuss the changes <laughs> there at the end. Well, the Watcher um, goes off into the country to open an inn um, yeah. and falls in love with yeah. an overworked city the girl. The Watcher returns to their hometown <laughs> after years away. We start in the woods. Birds chirp. The ominous chiming of a music box is underscored by a few creepy string tones. A flute joins the track, and it's eerily reminiscent to parts of the Three Women score. We see a family being driven along a country road toward a secluded property by a real estate agent. Do you guys recall the last Betty Davis movie we saw that started with a family being driven through the woods to a house they were going to rent, sight unseen, for three months? Is it The Burning? Close. Burnt Offerings. There you go. Uh. We're going to hear a lot about that film in this film tonight. <laughs> so get ready to, to use that answer again. A POV watches the car approach the house from behind a row of plants, a watcher in the woods, if you will. When they finally come to the house, the father assumes they misheard the weekly rate as the monthly rate. It's an enormous stone mansion overgrown in vines. Are you sure you didn't say $1,000 a week? Guide sure. Furnished? Indeed. What's the catch? Catch, Mr. Curtis. Which is almost the exact same back and forth with the owners in burnt offerings. Then we're talking in the neighborhood of $900. Look, I don't know that I'm going to be able to make that. By the whole summer. Well, I was waiting for the catch. Catch. The agent mentions an old woman who lives here and is insistent that the property only be rented to the right kind of family. Do you guys recall the last time that an old woman had to approve of the family <laughs> that was renting the property in the middle of nowhere in a Betty Davis movie? Bird bur bur offerings. Yeah, bird offerings. The younger sister, Ellie Curtis, makes an instant plan to climb a tree in the yard and explore the neighboring woods. Do you guys recall the last? No. But, <laughs> but the kid does climb a gazebo instantly and then hurts himself. Older sister Jan Curtis, played by Lynn Holly Johnson, reminds her to leave a trail of breadcrumbs in case a witch catches her. A sudden breeze spooks Jan. The agent knocks on the door of a nearby cottage to ask the old woman, Mrs. Aylwood, played by Betty Davis, for the keys to the property. As the agent describes the prospective tenants, Aylwood is distracted by the sight of Jan playing with her sister in the yard behind her. The father, Paul Curtis, sits down at a piano and plays a bit of jazz, which disgusts the agent who expected a classical musician to be renting the place. Mm -hmm. How dare he defile that grand yeah, piano. With a touch of jazz. Do you guys recall the last time someone was weirdly offended by jazz music? Uh, 
The jazz singer? <laughs> no, it was very recent. Two episodes ago. You expect me to remember two episodes ago? <laughs> Maude Adams was trying to sleep and someone was playing jazz in her house. Oh. Uh, tattoo? <laughs> what was that movie called where the guy's tattooing? <laughs> Alone in an upstairs bedroom, Jan peeks out the window at the yard, and a POV from the tree line crash zooms into her face. She notices a glow flash in the woods, and then the window shatters in a triangle where her hand was resting on the pane, and she cuts her finger. Well, you say it shatters, but it's- It doesn't shatter, it just cracks. It doesn't even crack. They glued a triangle. They just glued a triangle of glass onto the frame. Yeah. It's like, you couldn't just have someone cut a piece of glass. I don't think it's that- that Maybe difficult. they promised they wouldn't break any windows in this house. Oh, okay. So they just glued another window to the window. <laughs> Mrs. Aylwood shows up and asks Jan what kind of person she is and if she ever experiences any kind of extrasensory perception. The mother of the family, Helen Curtis, interrupts their chat to send Aylwood to her husband to discuss the rental price, and Jan confesses in private to her mother that this place is kind of creeping her out. She mentions the presence of the trees that seem to watch her, but Mom brushes it off. She also said something bad happened here. Yeah, something awful happened here. But it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here as in the general area. <laughs> okay. Something awful happened here. I can feel it. Something awful. As they leave the house, the agent admits that they were probably approved to rent the place because Jan resembles Aylwood's deceased daughter. Aylwood steps out the front door and announces to the woods that Jan will come back. She's going to stay here. Is that what you wanted? Mom hands out instructions on where to place things in the house, and as Jan puts a mirror on a dresser, she accidentally sweeps a phone off the desk to the floor. When she stands back up, she notices she has no reflection in the mirror. This all happens in one shot, so it's a tricky effect to pull off, but I'm pretty sure I see how they've done it. But I think this whole wall yeah. pulls out, and there's actually a hole. I agree. So it looks like she's setting a mirror down, and then when she knocks the phone down, the camera follows her to the floor, and while she's bent down, they're sliding the desk out and pulling away a fake wall to reveal a new mirror frame with a hole cut through mm. it so that when she stands up and looks through it, you don't see the camera or her face in the mirror. As she stares into it, perplexed, a triangle shatters out of the center of the mirror again, and in the shape, she can see the foggy image of a young girl in a blindfold with arms outstretched. And again, it's just a piece of glass glued to the center of the mm -hmm. mirror. After a moment, the rest of the mirror shatters as well, just as the rest of the family walks in. Hey, that's seven years bad luck. Nonsense. I broke a mirror the day I met your mother. I'm not sure that makes your point, darling. Later, Ellie surprises her sister in a rubber witch mask and is then sent off to bed. After lights out, Jen spots a figure carrying a lantern through the woods outside. In the middle of the night, Jan hears Ellie having a nightmare and saying, Most open door. Jan wakes her up and says everything's okay, but Ellie insists Jan is the one who is talking. They spend the rest of the night together in Jan's bed, and in the morning, Ellie finds a puppy to adopt from a nearby farm. A POV floats through the farm and follows Ellie around. Ellie steps up to a dusty window and uses a finger to wipe the word Narek into the dust but some of the letters are backward so that it clearly reads Karen from the opposite side. Again, she claims this is just a word she heard Jan say, and now she names the puppy Narek. Like, why would you assume that was a name suggestion? Mm -hmm. But what I don't understand is the 
the backwards speaking. So she's saying she's hearing things backwards, which doesn't make as much sense to me as like seeing things backwards and, mm-hmm. and presenting them backwards because of like the mirrors and the glass and the reflection and all that stuff. Yeah. And if you're actually hearing them backwards, then they would be spelled a little different. Well, that's what I was, that's the other thing is like, yes, that's how you pronounce Karen if you write the letters backwards. It's not how Karen sounds when you play right. it in reverse. And if you said Neric to me, this is not how I would spell it. I would spell it N-E-R-I-C. When Mrs. Fleming, the mother of the farmer family, notices the word Karen, she is shocked to silence. Oh, it's wrong. N- nothing. I, I just remembered I, I left something cooking. Excuse me. Mike the son of Mrs. Fleming, claims to Jan never to have known a Karen around here, but Mrs. Fleming is so traumatized she runs inside to bury her face in her hands. Back at the house, Narek makes a beeline for the woods and Ellie follows her, or him, or it. I don't know what Narek is. Jan follows Ellie and Mrs. Aylwood watches her go. On the way, Jan collects Ellie's still-playing radio from the grass. Jan screams Ellie's name into the woods louder and louder as she gets more scared, but when she finds her sister, Ellie claims not to have heard it at all. Jan is suddenly taken by the beauty of this neck of the woods. She's surprised by the sudden glow of blue under the water. It's like, it's like, isn't this a beautiful place? It's like, no, it looks like a friggin' swamp. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like this there's is a, gross. Get there's, out. There's a dead tree. I, I half expect a kid to be pulling a horse <laughs> through the swamp here in a second. Yeah. I guess uh, city kids are easily impressed. Yeah. <laughs> She's surprised by a sudden glow under the water. She sees a blue ring under the surface and shouts to Ellie that it's time to go. When the blue lights flash in front of her again, Jan falls backward into the water, and Mrs. Aylwood is suddenly right there above her, pushing Jan deeper and deeper under the water with a branch, terrifying Ellie. Now, they cut to these, like, uh, they cut to underwater shots, but then they cut to this, like, surface shot where you're looking down under the water. And the bubbles are stopping. (laughs) Yeah, it looks like she's, like, almost, like, in soap. It looks like she's under glass underwater. Yeah. Because she's exhaling bubbles, but they're stopping at a mm. at mm-hmm. like a plane above her under the water. It's very weird. Jan's arms are all tangled in the branches under the water. Mrs. Aylwood keeps pushing her deeper and deeper, and we hard cut to an explanation from Ellie as Jan awakens in Mrs. Aylwood's cottage. She had to push it down to get you loose from the branch. She saved your life. Only sort of an explanation. Like, I feel like it's not really super sufficient even because at this point I'm still convinced this woman is trying to drown this little girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want her to be like, once she got you out of the water, she kept strangling the water out of your lungs (laughs) to save you. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Aylwood asks why they named the dog Narek and they don't have a good reason beyond, it's Karen backwards. (laughs) What? You knew that? (laughs) Mrs. Aylwood explains that was her daughter's name. Jan asks if... Narek? <laughs> Narek or Karen? You need to be more specific. Jan asks if Karen had eye problems because of her visions of the girl in a blindfold. I mean, that's an eye problem, I guess, by itself. But yeah. if you don't have a blindfold on, then... That's... Well, traditionally, people who are wearing blindfolds aren't wearing them because they have eye problems. <laughs> yeah. It's not like this was a prescription blindfold. <laughs> prescription mm-hmm. blindfold. <laughs> she just had cataract surgery, so yeah. she has to be bound up. She could see too good. That was her eye problem. The question strikes a chord with Aylwood. Jan explains she's had visions of a young blonde girl, and Aylwood spills the whole backstory in response to the revelation. Karen's father died in the war, and sometime later, Aylwood stayed up one night to work on a birthday gift for the girl, but suddenly her room was empty. 
Aylwood assumes she left to see the upcoming lunar eclipse, but couldn't find her daughter anywhere. A solar eclipse. Sorry, what did I say? Lunar. Uh, lunar. I mean, I, I guess all eclipses are lunar eclipses, if you think about it. <laughs> Isn't it a lunar eclipse at the beginning, though, because it's at night, or no? But the whole point is that it's a solar eclipse. The second one is. Right. Was it a lunar eclipse, the first one? I don't know. Because lunar eclipses happen all the time. But yeah. solar eclipses are much rarer, especially to occur in the same area. Yeah, but she was, like, working on a gift really late at night. It wouldn't be. Mm. And she was, like, went to check her bedroom. She even says she stayed up late one night to work on a birthday gift. So late that the sun had almost set one night. That's how late I stayed up. I think it is a lunar because also later they ha- they they have the opportunity to go at night. And then for some reason there's also a solar eclipse the next day. Mm. Yeah, any eclipse will do. She arrives at the cathedral and sees a beam of light strike a higher floor of the building and a burst of sparks. Three children, John, Mary, and Tom, run from the church and don't respond when she calls to them. Apparently, Betty Davis did a screen test playing the 30 years younger version of herself, but agreed with director Hoff after a screening that the makeup wasn't doing the trick. It's like, no, I don't look like a 20-something-year-old mom in this scene. She finds the interior of the building in flames, and then we dissolve to Aylwood's fireplace in the present. She says the building burned down, but there was no sign of Karen in the rubble. And the building seems to be standing perfectly Mm -hmm. to this day. Just the wood parts burned. Oh, okay. Mrs. Aylwood confesses she hears voices in the wind and believes her daughter is alive. We cut back to the rental property where Jan's mother calls Aylwood crazy. We cut to a motocross event where Mike is competing. Considering they're both Disney films shot around the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if Elliot Gould and the crew of The Devil and Max Devlin were in the same crowd here. I was just, I was just going to say, do you remember the last time that yeah. we had a motocross event? I'm sure they shot this at the same time on the same day. And they probably even used shots in this that are in The Devil and Max Devlin. Jan finds a perch to watch the race and suddenly Ellie shouts for her to come quick just as a crash sends one of the bikes sailing over a dirt hill and exploding across the surface of the rock where Jan had just been standing. Jan is shocked to see the smoking remains where she just was. What did you want? I didn't want you. After the race, Mike drives Jan home and she tells him the story of the kids who were with Karen the day she disappeared. He tells her where to find the first two and is startled by the third name. Mary Pierce. Yeah. That was my mother's name before she married Dad. His mother claims to barely remember the girl's traumatic vanishing. Mary tells her son that Karen must have just run away that night. I don't know why she did, but but it's the only logical explanation. She blames someone named John Keller for putting them all up to it. At the rental place, Ellie shows Jan a pair of glasses that Dad made so she can safely observe Chekhov's eclipse. The parents head out to the store for groceries, leaving the daughters home together, and we get another POV from the Watcher of the Woods. Jan, Ellie, and Mike ride horses together, and Mike tries to send Ellie off on her own to get some private time with Jan. Okay, like, I know it's the 80s, and you leave kids home, and Jan Mm -hmm. is obviously old enough to watch her younger sister. Do you let them go riding horses alone? Yeah. Definitely. I feel like that's a little irresponsible. I mean, unless they are all experienced riders. Which they clearly are, judging from this next scene. <laughs> I mean, she's got the hat and everything. Yeah. Yeah, just seems it just seems a little odd. I'm like, yeah, sure, cool, hang out at home alone. Go ride horses alone? Yeah. There's, there's nothing safer than being on a horse. <laughs> the horses are suddenly spooked by a breeze from the woods watcher, and Ellie's horse starts running toward the road into the path of a speeding truck, or lorry, I guess. As he approaches a puddle in the road, a glow flashes in the water, 
and the driver accidentally cranks the wheel and sends the truck tipping over to one side, narrowly missing Ellie and her horse as they burst across the road. Jan's horse tosses her off its back right outside the ruins of the church that Karen disappeared from. She does a little investigating around the grounds. She notices a triangular beam of light pointing to the coffin at the altar, and after it fades, she inspects it closer. Inside what looks like a stone coffin, she sees a resting ghost in the form of Karen, half transparent and blindfolded. Jan closes and reopens her eyes in disbelief, and the girl is gone. In its place, a raven flutters out of the same box and right into Jan's face. <laughs> yeah. This not is not the last animal so will <laughs> throw hard in this girl's face. She's not startled when the raven, like, clumsily, like, falls through the coffin to try mm -hmm. to, like, take flight. She's yeah. only startled when it actually smacks her yeah. in the yeah. face. It literally <laughs> collides with her face. <laughs> when she turns around, she sees the silhouette of a man standing behind her and freaks out to run away. What? Well, rightfully so, because the guy is just standing there silently. Yeah, he doesn't say anything to her. He's just watching. Yeah, well, he's not like, don't don't be afraid. I'm not going to hurt you. Well, or... he, he thinks she's someone else, though. Yeah, so he he's, also, she knows he's also afraid in this moment. Yeah, he's a little crazy also, too. And I feel like they, they purposely made him look ethereal in this first shot because- So that we think he's another ghost. Yeah, he's standing up against sort of the stained glass windows. He's got this like blue hue around him, yeah. which we keep seeing this blue light. The man says nothing, and Mike tells her that was Tom Colley, one of the three kids who sent Karen away. Jan says the horse sent her here on purpose, but he dismisses it all as coincidence. A gust of wind shatters the overhead stained glass window, and two circles of glass come to rest, laying across each other. One decorated like a moon, one decorated like a sun, <laughs> in the shape of a Venn diagram on the floor. Mm -hmm. Ellie comes running in and asks when the window broke, like she's ever been in this dilapidated church. What are you talking about? How did you even know the window broke if you didn't know that it just broke because you heard it? Impressively, Jan recognizes the image of the overlapping circles as important, but unimpressively, she can't figure out what they could possibly mean. <laughs> Your sister told you that she was getting eclipse glasses this mm -hmm. morning. A rainstorm blows in, and we cut to the home of John Keller. Tom Colley is here to report that he saw Karen wandering the chapel, and Keller assumes that he's drunk. No, then I wasn't. She was there, I tell you. <laughs> I think the implication is he's drunk now, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keller reminds Colley that they've all been sworn to secrecy. It's like, yeah, by you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's impossible that Karen would appear as a child still so many years later. And, and sworn to secrecy why they've already told the police that yeah. they were there is there a secret that you can't tell anybody at this point i don't think that they fully explained what was happening that night though i think that they are keeping i think if you don't explain what happened then the story is much worse i am a priest who was out with a bunch of children and one of them vanished he, he forever was a child at the time too no keller was an adult keller was no keller was also a child he was older and he was a member of the church I, I, he might have been slightly older than them, but then he was maybe an older teenager. They were all children of the same-ish age, and they were going, yeah, hanging out and creating a secret society. That's it. Right. But when an older guy takes a pretty young girl blindfolded into the woods and she never comes out with him, then he goes to jail for raping and murdering her. Like, that's what everyone would assume happened. He wouldn't be in a position of power in this town now. But but there were three children, all of which vouched the same. Hey, we're hanging out at this church. She she was gone. And it's, but, it was but it started if the official on fire story and she's is gone. yeah, she disap she literally vanished in front of our eyes. Is that yeah. the official story that they told people? I mean, but that's because that's what no, they told they they said that they ran out. 
and they don't. And know they where couldn't she find her. It's suspicious, but I don't think that there's a secret. I, th- I think I think yeah. that that it's public knowledge that they were there. And she disappeared. All, so the, all I'm the only part of it that's a secret is that they were doing like this weird little seancey thing. Mm-hmm. But why would why is that a, an important secret? Because I think they feel responsible for it and they don't understand it, and so they're like, "Let's not talk about the part where we were doing seancey stuff and the girl disappeared." This is a superstitious town. Yeah. Tom asks if maybe it was a ghost, and we hard cut to a silly ghost animatronic in a dark ride at the local carnival, just as Jan and Mike come rolling out of the exit. Then they're on a swing, a Ferris wheel, and finally a hall of mirrors. Good idea. Let's go to the hall of mirrors. Mm -hmm. Girl who keeps getting haunted by mirrors. Jan steps into a ring of mirrors, surrounded at first by her own reflection, and then reflections of blindfolded Karen pleading inaudibly for her help. I I love the when they do it from the side. Yeah, and and overhead too. Yeah, when you get that, but you get that infinity shot of all of all the different Karens like calling for help. Yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, that looks so great. Yeah, it's awesome. Jan panics and runs outside. She confides in Mikey yet again that Karen is trying to reach out to her, and he again tells her she's crazy. She rides her bike to John Keller's place, and before she even knocks on the door, she sees Mike's mom walking by the house. The same house played the Hill House in the original Haunting in 1963. Keller answers the door with a barking dog at his side, and she tells him that Karen needs help. He doesn't believe her. She needs my help! She's trapped somewhere! I have better things to do than to listen to hysterical fantasies! Next, she rides the bike to Ainsley Lodge to find Tom Colley. What she finds instead is a collapsed cottage in the woods, decorated with animals strung to the ceiling. Uh, her walk to this, from where she parks her bike is this really long dipping path like it goes down a hill up a hill down a hill like in these it's like a it's like a roll rolling set of hills in the woods yeah it's like how did you know where to go here yeah but also the the camera work where the camera stays level the whole time but it, huh. it goes like over these dips so it must have been on like some kind of crane arm that was being raised as the crane went down into the dip and then and then came back down. I was like, how is the camera following her so well? Oh, I didn't well? even notice that. Jan is suddenly struck with a black cat, apparently thrown full force at the actress, and is understandably freaked out. <laughs> like the cat's claws are digging into her, too, as it hits her. Suddenly, Kali stumbles out from behind a curtain with an arm outstretched, and again, without saying a word. When his fingers finally touch her hair, he realizes she is not the ghost of Karen, and Jan confirms. He tells her he spent a long time looking for Karen, but never found her. And then makes her hold a bird for a minute. <laughs> Here, hold this bird. <laughs> he saves animals from traps in the woods. The cat, the bird. Jan asks what happened in the chapel and claims that telling her might help free Jan from the trap that she's stuck in. Collie finally tells her the story. Keller told Mary and Tom to blindfold Karen and lead her to the church in the woods, which is already a terrible plan. If a man of the church ever says, put your hot friend in a blindfold and bring her to me in secret, then you need to go tell the nearest atheist adult what's going on. I am 100% sure he was the same age as them and not a priest at the time. He's not older, or he's he's not the same age. He's a, he's at least five years older than them because he's, he's a foot and a half taller than the rest of the kids. He's still a peer, and he definitely was not a man of the church when this happened. Isn't he wearing like a cloak with a collar? I think he's just wearing a black suit. That's enough. <laughs> if a man in a black suit wants you to blindfold yeah, someone that's true. and bring him to a cathedral, yeah. say no. I make this look bad. <laughs> man in black. Get it? 
I'm not acknowledging it. Please clap. (laughs) It's my Jeb moment. That's a joke about uh, Jeb Bush when he (laughs) was running for president. He said, please clap. Did he actually ask people to clap? He did. He said like a bunch of stuff and nobody reacted to it. And then he's like, please clap. And then everyone clapped. And then people made fun of him about it for years. (laughs) Mary and Tom have apparently completed this test in the past and joined Keller's secret society. And this is Karen's initiation. They form a circle with their arms around her and she's forbidden from breaking it and apparently from speaking but maybe they didn't want to pay her as a full actress so so this is where i start to disagree about some things about uh lynn holly johnson putting together what's happening yeah to me the triangle shape is them holding hands because there's three kids because there's three points of the triangle but she, they keep talking about circles. We were in a circle. It's like, maybe that's what the circle in the pond meant. It's like, no, the circle in the pond was clearly the eclipse. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was what the sun... It was a dark thing over a light thing. Yeah. It formed a small light <laughs> ring. Yeah, it was just like, that's clearly the eclipse. The triangle is clearly them standing together. Yeah. It was like, they keep, they keep mixing up what the metaphors or the symbols are. Yeah. Keller asks the church if Karen is worthy to join their society when suddenly lasers from space seem to cut through the roof and set fire to the bell tower. Only Tom stays behind to watch as the bell falls, but Karen is gone before the bell reaches where she was standing. Mrs. Aylwood hears Ellie sing a song and asks where she heard it. She says Jan was singing it before she almost drowned. Aylwood invites Ellie over for cake and then shows her a little music box in the shape of a tower and it plays the same song she was just humming. Listen to the music and see if you can hear that voice again. Aylwood is trying to use Ellie's power to connect with her daughter. They're interrupted by Jan, who tells Mrs. Aylwood what she just heard from Collie. As Ellie stands listening to the music box, she starts reciting a message she's getting from the other side. Must help Karen. Must help. Ellie explains that there's a door in the chapel and they must open it soon. The voice claims not to be Karen, but someone else. Do you guys recall the last time we thought we were talking to the ghost of one child, but we were actually talking to a different ghost? He thought he was talking to the ghost of his daughter, but it wasn't his daughter. Oh, um, the changeling? That's right. At the end of the seance, Ellie collapses to the ground and the girl's mother enters the room announcing she's taking everyone home immediately. They pack up the car and try to leave in the pouring rain, but the trees around the driveway seem to close in around them, and the car suddenly dies. Do you guys recall the last time that a family tried to escape a possessed rental property in the woods and found their escape blocked by a terrible rainstorm and other supernatural forces? Burnt offering. That's right. (laughs) They're stuck halfway across a wooden bridge, so Jan snatches the keys away and makes a run for it. As soon as her mother and sister are safely off the bridge, The space lasers set the car and consequently the bridge on fire and both collapse into the ravine below. I don't mean to sound like Marjorie Taylor Greene when I say space lasers, but I don't know how to explain these. There's beams from the sky that are setting things on fire. Later that night, Jan's mother catches her talking to the invisible spirit and promises that this ghost won't be using her children any longer. Hours later, Jan awakens from a nightmare and finds Ellie in the bathroom writing on the mirror with a bar of soap. It says, do again tomorrow. Which, like, if you're hearing this backwards, mm-hmm. is it Odd Niaga Waramot? I mean... It would have to be saying the words in the proper order because she's writing, 
left to right, top to bottom. Do, do, do they confirm that they're hearing backwards talking? Well, well, see that that's where that's where I have a problem with this. Like I feel like they're showing her the vision of what to write, but then she keeps saying that she keeps hearing. Like they said, no, they named herself Narek. You know, I heard, yeah. I heard so and so singing. You know, it's like, no, no, no. You must be seeing these words because it makes no sense that you are hearing them. Right. See a good, a good. See, like there, there's like a little, couple little cool details they could have done, like the music box. She's like, the, like the song doesn't sound right, so she like turns the plays the, it backwards. Play, yeah. Like, like forces it to play it. Chicago reverse. is awesome. <laughs> Why is she talking in that Dante voice all of a sudden? <laughs> Nearly too late. Hardly ever happens. What hardly ever happens? When Ellie is broken from her trance, she doesn't know what she was talking about. The next morning, Ellie is looking for her eclipse glasses when she mentions that it's nearly too late and that eclipses hardly ever happen. Jan has flashbacks to the cryptic message from five seconds ago. Like, <laughs> we definitely needed to see that again and remembers the two pieces of glass eclipsing each other on the church floor. Jan collects all the kids from the memory to form a circle or triangle of hands before tonight's eclipse. She admits her plan to Mrs. Aylwood in an effort to bring back Karen. You mustn't do that. Whatever happened to my Karen could happen to you. Jan thinks they will be haunted by space lasers until they obey. She guilts John Keller back to the chapel, and the other kids follow soon after. I don't know how they got married to go yeah she seemed terrified in the first place and she's already ready to ditch it again immediately ellie tries to watch the eclipse and has to follow the escaping narek back to the church she comes to a windy corner in the woods and her face is lit in green she begins speaking in an older voice jan talks everyone into reattempting the ceremony against their better judgment Keller reads the same speech about holding hands. Mike says if it looks like Jan is going to be taken away like Karen was, he will interrupt the ceremony. Suddenly, an alien voice fills the room, and it's coming from Ellie's mouth. The voice explains that she and Karen accidentally traded places during the eclipse all those years ago, and the same conditions were required to trade back. They continue the ceremony. A glowing figure appears beside Ellie in the air, and Mary is so scared that she breaks out of the circle again, and they have to force her back into it. It's like, She's stop. the worst, You really. learned literally nothing. You almost like, just doomed another girl. You're traumatized your entire life from this experience, and you cannot hold on for like five freaking seconds and do the one thing you were asked to do. Yeah. They force her back in, and the glow appears again. It drifts through the room until it envelops Jan, and when Mike thinks it's taking her away, he breaks the ring of hands, and she disappears in a fluttering spotlight of leaves. To be fair, all of them kind of screw up at some point or another. Like yeah. he told he told Jan not to take her blindfold off. She mm-hmm. takes it off like almost immediately yeah. as soon as like Ellie starts to talk in tongues here. Yeah. And then like the guys drop hands multiple times too, yep. even. And, and they tell her not to speak, but yep. that's all she does. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> She's constantly speaking. She can't help it. We get an insert head-on of a solar eclipse, and then we're back in the chapel. Karen stands where Jan was. Jan and Mike have fallen to the ground together. The rest of the secret society stand and see Karen has returned. Ellie's voice is back to normal, and Mrs. Aylwood enters to see her daughter is back. Apparently an adult now, having aged in the netherworld. She doesn't look the same as the kid we've been seeing this whole time. I I agree, and um, it it goes against what... uh, the the Narek creature watcher told her that that she's in suspended right animation she, yeah that she's been frozen in place well okay so then okay 
this is where we're going to have to start talking about the differences between the endings, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. So if she's been suspended in space, has she been doing any of this communication or interaction with people here on Earth? No, it's entirely the Watcher. Then why the hell is anything about Karen even coming up in these conversations? Because the Watcher's like trying to lure them back to the church like, do you remember Karen? Mm-hmm. Come get Karen back, please. Come get your kid. Okay. I'm done babysitting her. It's like babysitting. She's in your deep freezer. Like, shut up. <laughs> Stupid alien. It's an alien, right? Or it's it's, it's, a, it's, it's interdimensional a being. being. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's the aliens from Crystal Skull. It's yeah. Just an inter- Knowledge is her treasure. <laughs> or it's, it's treasure, whatever it is. It was corn. It was a new seed of corn. That was the treasure. It Big has the juice. The oh. That works too. Mother and daughter embrace and we fade to black for the credits under the music box score again. Here's some changes to the Lifetime remake. Mrs. Aylwood is played by Angelica Houston in the Lifetime version. Yeah. She's really the only name actress in it, though. It's directed by Sabrina slash Clarissa actress Melissa Joan Hart. Oh. And it takes place in Wales, where, again, I said the book takes place in the U.S. But this version of the story is about the car stairs because... I assume that Disney owns the rights to this story with the name from this movie. Uh, The history is adjusted significantly so that in this version, instead of being an interdimensional demon creature, the Watcher in the Woods is the ghost of a plague doctor who protected this particular town during the scourge of the bubonic plague, but roams the earth with unfinished business until the daughters of the central family are able to solve the problem and send him back that's incredibly different isn't it it doesn't even seem like it's the same story at all i don't, he still kidnaps a girl but it's 50 years ago and i don't know why he does that because he's a plague doctor not a kidnapper mm. um, and what's his unfinished business his unfinished business is that in this town when people die they ring a bell for every year that a person was alive to send them safely to the afterlife um, and somehow they forgot to do it for the plague doctor who saved the entire town. So when he died, they never rang the bell. And so he's like, are you going to fucking ring the bell? I can't, I literally can't go anywhere until you ring the stupid bell. Is, is any of this from the book? No, like, no. The book is not about a plague doctor because it takes place in Massachusetts. <laughs> so it's not a bubonic plague territory. So, so why, why even call this watcher in the woods? Why try, why try to... Because that was on on this. Because the characters are all the characters from Watcher in the Woods. It's just a different motivation for that's bizarre the creature. But I like I said, I don't know the ending of the actual book. I just know that it can't be a plague doctor because it takes place in the United States, mm. where there wasn't plague doctors saving villages. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Okay. Now the alternate ending. <laughs> now the alternate ending. At <laughs> uh, everything is the same. Except, well, obviously, there's the scene at the very beginning, Mm -hmm. which this footage, I don't even know if it survives, where this enormous watcher creature that kind of looks like the ghost of Christmas future from Scrooge kind of wanders out of the woods and incinerates a doll that a girl is holding and then disappears into the trees before the opening titles. Then, at the end of the film, when Ellie is supposed to come marching out of the shadows of the cathedral, speaking in an interdimensional being's voice, instead, this nine-foot-tall bat monster yeah 
comes crawling it's out of great. the darkness. It's the, it's terrifying. It's really great. It's, yeah. Yeah. The puppeteering is wonderful. I, I think this thing is fabulous. Yeah. And I'm disappointed that it's not in the final. Yeah. It, it, it's It's got like leathery, plasticky wings. Yeah. But, and it just envelops her. It, yeah. Like, it just walks up to Jan and just wraps her up. And everyone's just kind of cool with it. Yeah. They're like, yeah, <laughs> this is this is happening. Like in the current ending, everyone's like screwing yeah. up left and right mm-hmm. in terms of like but, not keeping this going. But like weird, scary, insane monster comes out, wraps himself yeah. around Jan, and it's just like, yeah, and cool. Jan's not Sounds even good. freaking out. Like Jan's in there, just like, <laughs> did our people do this? <laughs> We're gonna get phone calls. But in the alternate ending, uh, Karen returns young. Right. Right. She's still young, and and they said that she hasn't aged today. Uh, yeah, and so I was like, "Well, let's see." Then that makes more sense to me. Yeah, given- because if now she's thirty years older, then it's like, have you just been in like a glowing chamber for thirty years? Because if mm-hmm. so, you probably shouldn't be able to speak anymore. Your brain should be pudding. Well, I think both of them have issues. So one, if she's if she's unaged, like in the original ending. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't she be really baffled by everything that's going on? Because in theory, she has no concept of what has happened. And she'd be like, Mom, why are you way old? Who are these people standing here Mm -hmm. in front of me? I know they give their names, but it's just like, why are you really old? You were teenagers when I last saw you, like, two seconds ago, because I've been in suspended animation. But if she's old... I, like, shouldn't she also be maladjusted and, like, mm-hmm. totally insane for or being... Or should she be a skeleton? Because no one's been feeding her wherever she was. Like, how is she still alive if she yeah. spent 30 years existing somewhere? Well, people go crazy in solitary confinement, right. yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Like, That's I'm why like... I'm saying she, w- she would be, like... She would be speaking in gibberish because she would have, like, lost all touch with humanity. She, she would have gone full nil. Yeah. Tay in the queen. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, is a weird movie. <laughs> it's uh, dark for Disney. I, I watched this movie a lot as a kid. Um, so I probably haven't seen it since I was like maybe 10 years old ish. Yeah. Um, and I remembered, I remembered key bits of it. Um, uh, but I never saw that alternate ending, uh, at all. I think it's a thumbs up for me though, for sure. Yeah, I'm going to give it a thumbs up. I feel like it would have been a bigger thumbs up if it had the original ending. Yeah. I don't know. The, the even the original ending is really weird. It's bizarre, but like I think it's I think it's a fun kind of bizarre. But it's also like both endings are like, "Hey, that's how it ends." And then it's like, in case you didn't understand, Jan's going to say a lot of words for a while and then hopefully you'll understand what happened. <laughs> like she still has to ex- exposition the rest of the ending so that we understand what happened because it's not yeah. clear in either version of the ending yeah i mean i think it's fine to to have a little bit of mystery of like was like well what the hell was that <laughs> like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like if you just showed this giant space monster creature and just never just yeah. never just end with the the reuniting of the mother and daughter yeah and you go well wait <laughs> hold on a second um but yeah the over explanation is like it's like oh he went back to wherever they're from, yeah. I guess. P- Poochie needed to go back to his home planet. Yeah. Poochie died on the way to his home planet. Uh, good stuff. What are we thinking, Letterbox, for this one? Um, you know, I'm, I'm giving it somewhere. I guess it's slightly above middle. I have it at 67 out of 143. All right. It is a. Uh, 
Uh, it's below Friday the 13th, part two, and above the Boogans. All right, Richard? Uh, I have it at 39. Because, uh, I, I, again, I kind of grew up with this movie, and so I kind of have like a little bit of yeah, nostalgia yeah. favoring it. Um, so I have it below Wolfen, but above Chariots of Fire. Um, I liked this movie, but I have it in 94th, which is just under Winter of Our Dreams and just above Chariots of Fire. Yeah. So, <laughs> hey. you, you both liked it better than the best picture winner of the year. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yep. Just slightly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I have to choose, Chariots of Fire or Watcher in the Woods. I yeah. agree. I'm watching Watcher in the yeah. Woods. I, I agree. Um, I still think that Betty Davis is above this movie. And that this movie works fine as a TV movie. Yeah, yeah I, I don't get what was so bad. About, but they probably saw the original ending. Maybe that creature's just too demonic. Yeah. Um, and they, didn't, they were like, where are we going to put this? We can't yeah. put this on ABC. Oh, they didn't even own ABC at the time. Did, did Disney have like a channel that they operated? In? Well, they, 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 they didn't own ABC, but they did have close uh, ties. Because the yeah. wonderful world of Disney or the magical. Aired on ABC. Yeah, it was still, yeah, it was ABC. Okay. That makes sense then. But yeah, I, even with the creature, I mean, for me anyway, like I don't, I don't think the creatures, the creature is is scary, but it's not menacing. It's it's yeah. not it's not meant to be menacing. It's just right. like this is a thing from another world, yeah. and, and it just looks unusual with its big, crazy, empty eyes. I think it's more menacing than anything Disney would put in a kids movie today, though. Mm. I'm just gonna also clarify that I do also have it above Chariots of Fire, just quite a bit <laughs> yeah. more above Chariots yeah. of Fire. <laughs> Our director here was John Hoff. He directed the 72 Treasure Island with Orson Welles as Long John Silver. He also directed The Legend of Hell House, Dirty Mary Crazy Larry, and the Escape from and Return to Witch Mountain films. After this, he helms Howling 4. The uncredited director of the new ending was Vincent McAvity. He did six episodes of Star Trek The Original Series, a few for Disney like The Million Dollar Duck, Super Dad, and The Strongest Man in the World. At this time, he had directed the two most recent Herbie films, Goes to Monte Carlo and Goes Bananas. Earlier this season, he also directed Disney's Amy. The writer here was Brian Clemens. He previously wrote Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde and later the story for Highlander to the Quickening. Another writer was Harry Spaulding, who has feature credits dating back to the late 50s, but not much I recognized. The third writer was Rosemary Ann Sisson, who has writing credits on The Wind in the Willows, The Black Cauldron, and segments of The Adventures of Young Indiana Jones. The novel was from Florence Engel Randall, who has the same credit on the 2017 Lifetime movie. Those are her only two credits. The writer for uncredited work, I think this was the final polish, came from Gary Day, who has mostly television writing on the way to Disney's Black Hole and later 65 episodes of the animated Dennis the Menace series. The music here came from Stanley Myers. He's the composer of Kaleidoscope, The Deer Hunter, and later this season, Lady Chatterley's Lover, and then eventually The Witches. Cinematographer Alan Hume was the DP on many Carry On films, maybe all of them, also Perfect Friday and Zeppelin. So far on the show, Hume has lit Caveman for Your Eyes Only and Eye of the Needle for this season. Later, he lights Return of the Jedi, Octopussy, Supergirl, View to a Kill, Life Force, and A Fish Called Wanda. The editor here was Jeffrey Foote. He previously cut Genghis Khan. This was Foote's final feature film editing credit. Betty Davis was Mrs. Aylwood. She's maybe one of the greatest actresses of all time. Awarded two Oscars for Best Actress out of 11 nominations, all for Leading Actress. She won for Dangerous and Jezebel in 36 and 39, and was nominated for 
of Human Bondage, Dark Victory, The Letter, The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, Mr. Skeffington, The Star, and perhaps her best-known works, All About Eve and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. She was portrayed by Susan Sarandon on Feud Betty and Joan, opposite Jessica Lange as Joan Crawford. Davis had previously appeared in Disney's Return to Witch Mountain, also for director John Hoff. Lynn Holly Johnson played Jan Curtis. We last saw her as James Bond's 16-year-old girlfriend, B.B. Doll, in For Your Eyes Only. She was never his girlfriend. She really desperately wanted to be. She wanted to and be. And she was naked in his hotel room bed. She was also in Ice Castles before this, and both of those films made use of her real-life ice skating skills. This one didn't. She was also Ingrid Bannister in MacGyver episode The Enemy Within. Yeah. Where she got hypnotized. She was a sleeper agent. That whole episode's great. It's really good. A robot named... Roberta. Yeah, it's got because it's got the it's got the car chase in the beginning. Yeah, uh, and then it's got the the friggin' uh, Sonic Sonic laser. Yeah, he's just sweeping <laughs> across. All the glasses are exploding. Yeah, the glass fillings. Yeah, <laughs> and that's also the same episode I think with uh, with Arthur uh, the the coroner. Yeah, Arthur Mallet. Yeah, Arthur Mallet is the coroner. Kyle Richards played Ellie Curtis. She was young Tia in Escape to Witch Mountain, Debbie in The Car, and perhaps most famously, Lindsay in Halloween, a role she recently reprised for the David Gordon Green trilogy. She was also Angie in Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive, where, again, her dog keeps luring her into the path of danger. Although she might be best known for her appearances on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Her sister Kim played the older version of the same character, Tia, in both Escape to Witch Mountain and Return from Witch Mountain, and more recently also appeared on Real Housewives with her sister. Kyle Richards and Kim Richards are also both aunts of Paris Hilton through their half-sister Kathy Hilton. Oh. Try to figure out that family line. Their half-sister. Their half-sister is Paris Hilton's mother. Oh. And they were both child actresses, which okay. is why they got to be on that season of or series of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Oh, is that like based around other Hilton people? I, I think it was just because Paris Hilton was reality show bait oh. at the time. And so they started just recruiting her extended family into shows. That makes sense. I've literally never watched a Housewives of anything. Neither have I. Yeah. <laughs> Carol Baker played Helen Curtis. She was Luce Benedict in Giant. She's Baby Doll in 1956's Baby Doll. And we'll see her next as Dorothy Stratton's mother in Star 80. And later, she's Eleanor Crisp in Kindergarten Cop and Ilsa in Fincher's The Game. I like that we have two BB dolls in this, though. There you go. David McCallum played Paul Curtis. He was Ilya Kuryakin in The Man from Uncle. He's the voice of Professor Paradox on Ben 10. Alfred in a couple Batman series, and he's played Ducky in 448 episodes of NCIS. Speaking of coroner characters, I think. Benedict Taylor played Mike Fleming. He appears in the Lifetime Channel remake as John Keller, so he plays Mike here, the kid that is a dirt biker. Mm-hmm. The dirtbag dirt biker. That's, that's unfairly judgmental of Mike. He's fine. He's just a jerk, and he doesn't believe all women. Hashtag believe all women. Help save her. <laughs> right, but he also says, you're crazy. You're crazy. Everything you're doing is imaginary. I would say that too if I were him. I wouldn't. I'd be like, I believe you, sweetie. I believe you saw a ghost in the mirror. I'm staring at the ghost in the mirror. I'm asking her to go away. <laughs> <laughs> Ian Brennan played John Keller in this version. He played 
someone named Crow probably in the original Flight of the Phoenix, <laughs> not an actual Crow. <laughs> uh, did you say it sounded like you said Brennan? Bannon, sorry. Yeah. Ian Bannon played John Keller in this version. He plays Crow in the original Flight of the Phoenix. He was Inspector Godlyman chasing down Donald Sutherland in Eye of the Needle earlier this season. Later, he's Sir Edith Moser and Leper in Braveheart and Jack O'Shea in Waking Ned Divine, which I remember seeing in theaters like opening day. You remember seeing Waking <laughs> Ned Divine yeah. in theaters? I, it was like me and a theater full of old men. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, that movie is great. Yeah, I love the movie. <laughs> but I just remember going and being like, that's what came out today. I'm buying a ticket to that. It's the only one I haven't seen on this marquee. I, I very distinctly remember watching that movie as a kid, too. Yeah, it's good. Georgina Hale played young Mrs. Aylwood <laughs> because Betty Davis wasn't up to the challenge, I guess. Uh, she also played Philippe in The Devils. Dominic Gard played young John Keller. Young in quotes. It says, young, priestly dressed John Keller. <laughs> it doesn't say that. Uh, <laughs> he was also the voice of Pippin in Bakshi's Lord of the Rings. I think that's everything for Watcher in the Woods. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Or as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got one! That's right, it's a new patron, Peter Norton. As a $5 patron of the show, Peter now has access to 38 full-size 70s reviews, 40 minisodes from 1980, and a hand in choosing next month's film. For April of 1973, $5 patrons are choosing between the following 10 titles. And now the screaming starts. Another Roy Ward Baker British horror title, a rare feature-length story from Amicus. It stars Peter Cushing, Herbert Lom, and Patrick McGee. Bunch of the usual suspects. Mm -hmm. Except for Herbert Lom. Is it Herbert yeah. Lom like a normal one? Yeah. But this is Amicus. It's not Hammer, so okay. mixing it up a little. Cannibal Girls, an early Ivan Reitman horror comedy about a couple who spend a night at a farmhouse only to learn the inhabitants are cannibals. The couple are played by Eugene Levy and Andrea Martin. That sounds great. It does, doesn't it? High Plains Drifter, a Clint Eastwood western written by Shaft and French Connection scribe Ernest Tidyman. It tells the story of a man who arrives in a corrupt mining town and starts serving up some frontier justice. The Mac. Michael Campus's black exploitation film that starts as a sort of race-swapped American History X and then becomes about being the city's biggest pimp. It stars Max Julian and Richard Pryor. Messiah of Evil. From the husband and wife writing team Gloria Katz and William Hoyk, who later composed American Graffiti, Howard the Duck, and Temple of Doom, Messiah of Evil is a supernatural horror story starring Marianna Hill, Michael Greer, and Anitra Ford. Scarecrow a Jerry Schatzberg film about an ex-con drifter and a homeless former sailor who team up to head east together, starring Gene Hackman and Al Pacino. Scorpio, Michael Winner's Cold War espionage film about a CIA agent ordered to assassinate his former mentor, starring Burt Lancaster, Elaine Delon, and Paul Schofield. Schlock, John Landis's directorial debut, shot right here in lovely Camarillo, California, and serving essentially as a trog parody, starring Landis himself, Saul Cahan, and Joseph Pianodossi. Season of the Witch, a George Romero horror film about a neglected housewife's adventures in the world of witchcraft. And Soylent Green, 
Richard Fleischer's post-apocalyptic sci-fi mystery about a good cop who stumbles upon the truth behind the corporation feeding the world in the far-off future of 2022. Each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversaries this coming April. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing My Dinner with Andre, which IMDb describes like so. Two old friends meet for dinner as one tells anecdotes detailing his experiences, the other notices their differing worldviews. Oops, I already summarized the entire film. <laughs> we leave you now with the trailer, if there is one, <laughs> for My Dinner with Andre. You see, that's why I think that people have affairs. I mean, you know, in the theater, if you get good reviews, uh, you feel for a moment that you've got your hands on something. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a good feeling. But then that feeling goes quite quickly. And once again, you don't know quite what you should do next. What'll happen? Well, have an affair, and up to a certain point, you can really feel that you're on firm ground. You know, there's a sexual conquest to be made. There are different questions. <laughs> Does she enjoy the ears being nibbled? How intensely can you talk about Schopenhauer at some elegant French restaurant? Whatever nonsense it is. It's all, I think, to give you the semblance that there's firm earth. Well, have a real relationship with a person that goes on for years. That's completely unpredictable. Then you've cut off all your ties to the land and you're sailing into the unknown, into uncharted seas. I mean, you know, people hold on to these images of father, mother, husband, wife, again, for the same reason, because they seem to provide some firm ground. But there's no wife there. What does that mean, a wife, a husband, a son? A baby holds your hands and then suddenly there's this huge man lifting you off the ground and then he's gone. Where's that son? The life of a playwright is tough. came in, Debbie was home from work, and I told her everything about my dinner with Andre.